Lot number 12 is the bacon. Showing here on the screen behind the telephones, the wonderful 63 Henrietta Moraes painting. A London auction room, February 2012. The art world holds its breath as a portrait described as artist Francis Bacon's most seductive and sexually charged goes on sale. And where should we open this? £12 million at £12,500,000. Thirteen million pounds at fourteen million. Fourteen million five hundred thousand. The bids advance in increments of half a million pounds. Eighteen million five hundred thousand. Nineteen million. The whole room is watching you. <laughs> at nineteen million. All done. Fair warning. Sold here at nineteen million. The sale attracted media attention here in Ireland. You're with the News at One on RTE Radio 1. A painting by the Irish-born artist Francis Bacon of a woman who was well-known in County Leash in the 1970s and 80s has been sold for over €25 million Euro by Christie's in London. Portrait of Henrietta Mores was sold and bought by anonymous participants in last night's auction. Now, we'll hear about um, Lady Henrietta uh, from... So... Just who is Henrietta Moraes, the sitter in the painting? And how did she end up living in Ireland? The woman whose physicality enraptured Bacon and other artists. Her contorted face is rendered in a couple of violent and distorted brushstrokes of pink and red. As with many of Bacon's subjects, Henrietta is on a bed. She sits undressed and sprawled, on a simple mattress. Dark-haired and voluptuous, Henrietta was exuberant and commanded attention wherever she went. She was lovely, but she was wild. I mean, spiky, and and, uh, you had to watch what you said. But she was lovely. I know when I see the moon, I um, I always think Henrietta's up there in the moon, have a little chat. Nothing really would ever stop the force of Henrietta. And I think that makes her an amazing person in my life, if not a very good mother. <laughs> it's always very bad for an alcoholic to have another alcoholic who's much worse than you, because you always can say, well, I'm not as bad as him. She'd been drinking like a demon since she was 18. In the mid-1990s, Henrietta published her autobiography. Even from the opening sentence, the account of her life reveals a woman who would invent herself. I was christened Audrey Wendy Abbott in 1931. My father, whom I can't remember ever having seen, was in the Indian Air Force and he had red hair. I've seen one photograph of him. He looked like a fox and he was called Ginger. He tried to strangle my mother when she was pregnant and then took off to parts unknown and was never seen again. I am an only child. When I was young, I wanted to find him very much and when I was 18, I entertained specific fantasies about meeting in the Hyde Park Hotel and told everyone that I'd done so. It was complete fabrication. I just wanted it to happen. I used to think that when I found him, my opening words would be, you owe me a hell of a lot of pocket money. But it never happened. And I don't know what he was really like at all. Following a troubled and unhappy childhood, Audrey Wendy Abbott threw herself into London's Bohemia 
she changed her name to Henrietta. Her beauty and charisma quickly earned her the title the Queen of Soho. Every night we used to go to the gargoyle. The sun was going down on the gargoyle. It was like the end of the Café Royal. You took a lift up to the top floor and then walked down a flight of steps into a ballroom designed by Matisse in the 30s. The walls and pillars were covered with glass squares which endlessly reflected people, things and events. Here and there the glass had dropped away and the overall picture was one of shattered grandeur, an aged beauty unable to visit the dentist. The band, a bunch of Greek Cypriots named Alexander's Ragtime Band, liked to play the Charleston and the Black Bottom. The same people went there every night. Two people that I was determined to make friends with because I felt so drawn to them were Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon. They were both young, not particularly well-known painters, but Lucian's hypnotic eyes and Francis's ebullience and charming habit of buying bottles of champagne proved irresistible. I was dancing with Lucian in the gargoyle one night and I said to him, I want you. We made a date to meet at lunchtime the next day in a basement off Brewer Street and there consummated, on the edge of an unwieldy kitchen sink, our friendship. I fell in love with Lucian and was soon going to his studio in Paddington to be painted every day. It was a romantic work. I was sitting on a bench loosely wrapped in a grey blanket and in the background was the canal with three little ducks swimming along. We used to have oddly timed meals of boiled eggs and toast and watch the contorted figures of meth drinkers creep past the cafe window. Throughout the 1950s, Henrietta became the constant drinking companion of the emerging and controversial artist, Francis Bacon. Bacon was a habitual, almost addictive gambler and just as he gambled at the tables in London, particularly later on when he was wealthier, he took wild risks in his painting. In the portrait of Henrietta, he describes her with swipes of a loaded brush. One evening, I was having a drink in the French pub with Francis Bacon and Deacon and others. Francis said, I'm thinking of painting some of my friends and I'd like to do you, but I can really only work from photographs, so if it's OK, Deacon will come round to your house and take them. I'll tell him what I want. You are beautiful, darling, and you always will be. You mustn't worry about that. Deacon arrived at Apollo a few days later. We had some drinks and a little bit later retired to my bedroom. Deacon said, He wants them naked and you lying on the bed and he's told me the exact positions you must get into. Throw yourself back on the bed and abandon yourself. Open your arms and legs wide. Come on! He started snapping wide-angle shots between my legs. Deacon, I know you've got it wrong. Francis can't possibly want hundreds of shots of these most private parts in close-up. I just don't believe that's what he's interested in painting. It can't be so. In the end, he overrode me. After all, Bacon had told him, not me, what he was after and so forth. One afternoon, about a week later, I wandered into a Soho drinking club, a bit off my beat, but in I went. The room was full of sailors, all of them crowding round a familiar figure, 
Deacon. His hands were full of the original photographs he'd taken of me, and he was selling them off for ten bob a time. Deacon, I yelled at him, I don't care, really, but don't you think you should buy me a large drink? I was having a drink with Francis Bacon in the colony room. One day I'll give you a picture, Francis said. Bacon painted Henrietta at least 16 times over the next 20 years. She never got the promised painting. She never gained financially from her role as painter's muse. In London of the swinging 60s, she drifted into drug use and needed money to maintain her habit. Though no one, especially myself, was aware of it, I entered into a state of acute psychosis, a condition of severe mental derangement caused by the habitual use of amphetamines. Burglary became my obsession. Cat burglary. Not so much for the gain of possessions, for they were nothing more than the endless bric-a-brac collected by a human jackdaw, but for the breathless excitement to be had from breaking and entering another stronghold, the exhilaration of shinning up a drainpipe, sliding through an open window, tiptoeing through an occupied bedroom and making off with a couple of bathroom towels and a brass ashtray. I adored the danger. Henrietta was a somewhat inept burglar. Now a mother of two and with three failed marriages, her crimes would inevitably lead her to prison. Not long after I came home from Holloway, I was offered an ampoule of methadrine, which I eagerly accepted. Methadrine is a form of liquid amphetamine for injection, and it is very, very strong. It was once used to resuscitate the dead by injection straight into the heart. Be all that as it may, I know only that the first injection of methadrine that I ever had, a combination of the time and the circumstances, of course, lifted me up onto a wave, and I coasted home at the speed of light on its crest, the duck to water. With a costly drug habit to maintain, she cast about amongst her circle of friends for a more orthodox source of income. I telephoned Richard Booth, the bookshop impresario, and fixed up an interview with him. I've got a friend of yours staying with me, he said. Who? Marianne Faithful. Oh, good. From her Paris apartment, Marianne Faithful remembers her time with Henrietta. My first image of her in the 60s, what she was like. She's, she was never thin, you know, she was beautifully made. You must know that from the paintings. I mean, the one really to go... The beautiful one, the really beautiful one, is on the cover of Henrietta, the book, which was done by Lucian Freud. And that shows her beautiful shape, you know. The paintings by Francis are a lot more grotesque, but they're also very interesting, and Francis painted her a lot. And honestly, between the two of them, they got her. She was very, very social. You know, that period where she worked for me... Um, as my sort of tour manager maybe I'm a, just a different kind of person I don't know if I really minded her I accepted her my mother was an alcoholic you know, 
and uh, I kind of knew the drill. And indeed, I became an alcoholic myself, not quite like Anne. But I have to say that when she lived with me for a little while in Hanover Terrace, she was incredibly kind to me. She, I didn't expect it, you know. She would make me scrambled eggs on toast with a sprig of parsley in the morning, make coffee, and look after me. And I really needed it. I was deep into drugs. I had no clue what... I learned a lot from Henrietta. I learned a lot about books. I learned a lot about diet. I learned a lot about film. I really learned a lot. And, of course, about painting. I knew Francis quite well. And he loved her. He really loved her. Although she was very naughty. You had to kind of take that on the chin, really, I think. Life with Marianne in a muse flat in St. John's Wood was fairly desultory to start with. She had no money and was waiting to go on tour in Ireland. Her tiny little flat, which belonged to a friend of her mother, was behind the beautiful white Regency houses, looking out over the park and Queen Mary's Rose Garden. Her doctor had a practice in Harley Street and for some reason was extremely generous in handing out prescriptions for amphetamines and mandrakes, I used to go to him once a week to keep myself together. It was called Hawk Records, and they released Dreaming My Dreams in Ireland. First and last time I've ever had a number one. And it went to number one and stayed there for seven weeks in era, and only era. And off I went on these tours with Henrietta. And... Uh, it was a huge battle between Hen and all the time Henrietta wanted to stop at every pub on the way. The very first gig she did started shakily. For a moment I thought it would be a disaster. It was in a huge venue known as the Snake Pit in Dublin, a vast auditorium filled with shouting, gesticulating people. I peered through the stage curtains and was exceedingly glad that it wasn't me who had to go on. Marianne and I stood in the wings, waiting for her cue. As it came up, she turned to me and said, I can't go on. As she spoke, she was sick all over me. I seized her by the shoulders, spun her round to face the stage and firmly booted her on. She arrived centre stage at a half run and with her arm raised in a Nazi salute, trying to keep her balance. It went down very well with the audience. She sang rather flat, but they didn't mind at all. She could be very difficult. And, uh, and I suppose rather frightening. And she was liable to throw up all over your 18th century furniture and things like that. She had a very, very difficult relationship with her son, with Josh. I think he hated her. I'm not sure really what happened in his childhood, but somebody in that group of very loose people abused him and he just never forgave Henrietta like they don't you know the child blames the mother because she should have been protecting him okay I'm Henrietta's son um God, I'm going to have to compose myself for this Okay, I'm Henrietta's son. That's it. 
I think I had a very difficult relationship with my mother. I mean, she was... She wasn't a great mother um, anywhere. And... Um, and she had mental health issues, I mean, which were very real. I understand now she had bi she was bipolar, and in order to cope with that, she drank or she took drugs she self medicated and that got you know growing up with someone who's bipolar is not easy it's like I grew up not knowing what I was relating to. So I was confused. I think I was very, I felt very lonely. I spent a lot of time on my own, even though I had a sister. Um, I didn't really know what was going on a lot of the time. And Henrietta had sort of pinned me not down but she kind of pinned me with her gaze Joshua you know when when you're when you're 30 you will be a millionaire and you will look after me won't you and I was just eight years old and completely overwhelmed and terrified by the idea of it even then we lived in a house of drug addiction we lived in a house where people were dying in my bed from overdoses and with no electricity and no food and no heat and nothing just crazy so when she said this to me I kind of like thought how the hell am I going to look after you and all of this mess and I was running away from that for 40 years Henrietta also did some running in the late 70s, she returned once again to Ireland, this time alone. As before, she turned to her friends for sanctuary. Through the London scene, she had befriended Penny Guinness, wife to Desmond Guinness of brewery fame. Desmond had founded the Irish Georgian Society, and it was this connection that would mean that Henrietta would find a home in Ireland. Um, my name is Desmond Guinness. We had a house that the Irish Georgian Society was um, renovating. It, it had been left empty and it was in a terrible state. And Henrietta became our caretaker. She was a great friend of my wife, Penny, and um, they'd always known one another in England. And um, I think she was having a difficult time making ends meet and so on. And somehow she came to Ireland and stayed here for many years. Roundwood was an 18th century Irish Georgian house owned by the Irish Georgian Society, of which Desmond was the president. Roundwood was 60 miles from Leakslip and lay in County Leash, of which I had never even heard of. When I asked Desmond where it was, he replied, It is the massive centrale of Ireland, my dear. So I was none the wiser. We turned through some rather battered iron gates into an avenue of lime trees and proceeded slowly up a potholed drive. 
We cleared a bend and there sat Roundwood, a darling mid-18th century building looking for all the world like a gigantic doll's house. Oh, I said, isn't it lovely? It was very useful for us to have her there. People that, that live nearby took to her enormously because she was so original and, and such good fun. And she would have otherwise been very lonely, but she, she just loved people, and so that's, I suppose, how she got through. Henrietta's time at Roundwood was the stuff of local legend. And she would live there for five years before Frank Kennan eventually bought it from the Georgian Society. So the first time we were sent down to look at the house and, and uh, told that there was a, a caretaker in it who had, they thought, brucellosis. So we came down expecting a, a sort of a, an elderly countrywoman who was quite sick and wouldn't be able to do an awful lot for us. Uh, arrived in the front door and found Henrietta, a, a larger-than-life figure, who was a bundle of energy, who was willing to show us the drawing room and the study and said, we'll get the, the, we'll get the rest later. You know, if, you, if you buy the wine, I'll, buy, I'll make the lunch. So we had to drive her downtown, pick up... Uh, she went off shopping for fish and we bought wine, came back up and happily got drunk and... Never actually saw the house that time. Uh, had to come back to see the house later. Yeah. She was living here, and it's a wonderful place to live. But she had no money. And as far the Georgian Society had no money. Uh, she, they could give her a little bit every now and then, but she, she found it difficult to get money out of them for essential repairs, uh, simply because they didn't have it. Uh, so in effect, she was swapping fields for whiskey and getting the locals to do what they could for her, but uh, it was probably quite, it was probably very lonely. Uh, and she couldn't, she didn't have a car. Uh, she had a bike, but she could go downtown, but she didn't have the money for drink when she got there. So unless somebody was willing to buy her a drink, now I think quite a lot of the locals were. Uh, as I say, she was wild, so God knows what they were swapping for the drink, but uh, uh, they suggest all sorts of things, but I never know whether... Never know whether to believe them or not. There I was, alone in a beautiful house in the country with no one to talk to or be with. I couldn't decide what to do when I got up in the morning or for the rest of the day and night. I wandered around aimlessly in the house and the grounds. Sometimes I took my dog for walks or went a mile up the road to the little shop and bought my daily needs. I did not have a car and Mount Rath was not accessible to me. So everybody knew which people came to the house for the wrong reasons. Uh, uh, we talked to a fellow in Dublin once who told me about it. He, he knocked on the front door. He was a carpenter. And he was sent down by the Georgian Society. Uh, so he, he knocked on the front door and he, he got no answer. So he pushed it and it opened. So he went in and he called out in the hall. And the next thing, one of the locals ran down the stairs putting on his jacket and, and Henrietta came strolling down the stairs a couple of minutes later, totally naked, and said, hello, and went into the kitchen. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. He spent a long time thinking, what do I do now? <laughs> Eventually he managed. But two locals with no ulterior motives were Oliver and Mary Phelan, 
who would rescue Henrietta from loneliness. One evening, I saw two figures approaching the house. One was the man who had rented the park for his cattle, Oliver Phelan. By his side walked a short figure with her hair done up in a bun and with her eyes heavily underlined and wearing high heel sandals. They said they were going to town to do a bit of shopping and have a drink, and would I like to come? Would I? I assented eagerly, and that was the beginning of a long friendship. Almost every evening for some years, the Felans would roll up at about six and we'd take off for Mount Rath, shop and have some drinks at El Paso. For me, it was a real lifeline. We came to ask if she wanted help or she need, you know, because she was in this house on her own. So we became very good friends after that, you know. I remember her um, going around the, the house here with a big, huge hippie dress on her, you know. And uh, a great big, she used to carry a basket on her arm, you know, she was a real hippie type, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think I carried her into town one day. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we wound up in the El Paso pub. And uh, that was the start of the friendship, anyhow. And then, we, we, yes, every evening then, we used to come down here and we'd pick her up and we'd head for the El Paso. And needless to say, from there on, with loads of drink. Drowning her sorrows. <laughs> she had great stories to tell uh, about uh, London in the 60s. 60s and all her friends there. like, And uh, she talked about all the uh, bacon, Philadelphia Francis painter, bacon, Francis Bacon. And, John uh, Deacon. She had a bicycle here, you know, a big. Big tiny Nelly sort of basket. I don't know where she got that. And she used to cycle into town, but then she was the never way home, to bring it home, you could see Henrietta lying in the ditch in the red socks. <laughs> she lost a bottle of whiskey down the road, just over the bridge there, and we spent ages looking, but never could find it. <laughs> what she told us over the years, I can't remember now, but about all the people she met was mm-hmm. so interesting that uh, you couldn't pay for that type of uh, you know, entertainment, if you like. In the quiet atmosphere of Roundwood, Henrietta worked on the first draft of her autobiography, but her wild years caused anxiety amongst many of her ex-lovers. <laughs> she buried all over the house. She had correspondence uh, all... Now, not her own correspondence, uh, the correspondence she got from people. Quite a lot of them were, Dear Henry, here you're publishing your autobiography and we would be very glad if you'd let us see the, the draft before you publish. Uh, now, I don't think she was paying attention because the, the letters were under couches and you know, when we were tidying up to start with, they were all over the They were literally all over the place. You know, but none of us had any notion about London society or, or even Dublin society, uh, or celebrities or anything else. So uh, we burnt them, but I'm almost sorry we did because I could look them up on Google now and see who they were related to or what they were or why they were so worried. Desmond and Penny often visited. Penny and I started a flower bed, planting clematis, honeysuckle, and a rose bush. I spent five years altogether at Roundwood. I felt a fierce loyalty to Desmond and Penny, which gave me the courage to stick it out. 
When Desmond said that the house had to be sold, I felt a sense of relief. But another good day I actually spent with her was uh, we we had uh, spuds in the in, in the, the garden, garden, the walling garden. See, I used to rent the land, and uh, I came down here to dig the spuds by hand, believe it or not. And uh, she spent the whole day picking the spuds, and uh, I remember she coming along and she said, "That's one of the happiest." days I've ever I've had in years she said she hadn't drank I couldn't believe we actually come in here and had tea and uh, sandwiches and she never reached for the bottle when she was happy being in the garden like you know the concluding words of her book were written following a return from rehab my life has completely changed Instead of the wild swoops up and down that characterise alcoholism, I seem to maintain a steady emotional equilibrium. My relationships are stable and my word is reliable. I don't lose my temper very much and I try not to blame everyone else for my faults. I say my prayers at the foot of my bed like a child is supposed to. I find more love in my life. I love my friends so much and I'm amazed that some of them have been there for over 30 years through all my nonsenses. I live from day to day sober and hopeful. My grandchildren and my dog have never seen me drunk and I trust and pray that they never will. Henrietta moved back to London and lived in a tiny flat, struggling financially. The sober life was not to last. Over the following years, she would fight against her demons. But in the end, the demons won. Henrietta died, aged 67. Throughout her life, she had many love affairs with both men and women. In the latter months, she was once again an artist's muse, this time to Maggie Hambling, CBE. One of Maggie's paintings hangs on Marianne Faithful's bedroom wall in Paris. Um, do you see that behind you? Now, that's also a painting of Henrietta. It's the Thames, look, the brown bit. That's the River Thames. Oh, and yes. the grey is the embankment. And uh, Maggie did a still life that means Henrietta. So there's the, the, the flowers bought in the garage and a small bottle of Ray and Nevue's Jamaican rum, 90 proof. She's done a whole series of paintings of Henrietta, either of Henrietta, which are almost too... I couldn't have that hanging up. It's too grotesque. And it's true. You know, I think she did look like that at the end. Maggie completely fell in love with her and was with her all the time and was with her when she died. So she didn't die alone. It took Henrietta's son, Josh, a long time to even look at the paintings that his mother posed for. I think I've struggled with Maggie and her relationship with Henrietta because I see it differently from the way Maggie sees it. Um, I see it as a kind of a spiritual connection more than a sexual connection. And that's what has meaning for me. So when I see the sexual explicitness 
of her pictures. I, I can't connect the two. It's like, I'm sure Maggie does and can and has, but it doesn't work for me. I'm Maggie Hambling and we're sitting in uh, my London studio where Henrietta posed for me throughout, uh, well, from the spring of uh, 1998 until her death on uh, Twelfth Night, 99. And quite quickly I became her subject rather than she mine. Uh, she had a way of uh, a command. I mean, she was like, she had been the Queen of Soho and the rest of it. I mean, she was the, the Queen of this studio, really. Uh, and she had, uh, she was, obviously, when you're painting someone, you want them to be present. You know, a lot of people can get sleepy or move about or the rest. But no one could have been more present. I mean, she was a force of nature. And she had this way of looking through you, so you felt like you were a pane of glass. I mean, she could see right through you and out the other side. She would walk into a room and she was just about a hundred times more alive than anybody else in the room. I mean, she had huge magnetism, huge charisma. She was, of course, pretty stocky and sturdy by the time I knew her. But there was still the beauty, of course, and the broken nose. Uh, in earlier days, apparently, when very drunk, she would arrive uh, somewhere with one eye made up and not the other because she'd simply forgotten <laughs> to do the other one. Uh, I did know her drunk. I did know her very ill from the drink. Uh, she was sort of dicing with death. It was sort of uh, a kind of bravura courage she had, you know, that she was determined to win over the drink. Of course, in the end, the drink won, but her spirit was sort of indomitable. Oh, I suppose it was that sort of October, November that she she was drinking and it was showing. You know, she was becoming... You could see, feel the skull beneath the flesh. And she would wear preposterous hats. And again, somebody told me that whenever she was really drunk, she would put on some extraordinary hat for a party. And those days were very difficult. Her mental health went. And, as I say, I was with her when she died, uh, where she lived at World's End. Uh, she was in bed, and uh, I'd brought her, rather suitably, some lilies. <laughs> and um, she said, what's that thing Oscar Wilde said not long before he died? And... Uh, I said, well, you know, it. And then she quoted the whole quotation about, you know, Wilde addressing the wallpaper, saying one of us has to go, I fear it will be me. She quoted the thing perfectly. And then her last words to me were, uh, come and give me a hug and another cigarette, as I did. And uh, I was fiddling around with the flowers and uh, this extraordinary set of noises came out of her. And she died. She died of cirrhosis in a terrible way. Her liver exploded, the classic kind of situation, you know, blood everywhere, the liver exploding, the, the real end, which has happened to so many people I've known. It wasn't until 
this year when I saw the painting at Christie's was the first time I'd ever seen a, an actual canvas of Henrietta. I spent my whole life avoiding that. And it's kind of, it's extraordinary to come to that late in life, you know, with, with a different kind of understanding. Because what I see in the portraits now is I actually can see my mother. But what I see is a woman who's bared her soul, who is being painted as she is. Today, somewhere out there in the world on that anonymous wall hangs the portrait of Henrietta Mores. I think I think the, the image that always comes to my mind is of Henrietta barreling down the main street in Mount Rath, uh, all akimbo and, and whatnot, to get the fish for us to get the wine. But she was sailing down the street, uh, yeah, under full sail at that, uh, just super confident, despite the fact that she had no money and nothing else either, you know, that... Uh, I think she was asking us to have lunch because she needed the company as well as the wine. Uh, and yet it's a, an image that if I could paint, I'd paint Henrietta going down the main street in Madras like it was a plantation town and she owned it. You know, I will never forget the beauty, I will never forget those eyes that commanded whoever she looked at. When you look at the red of the portrait, that's she's, she hasn't got any skin. It's like what you're seeing is what it was like inside her head. This is what it, her life was like. And I can, I can actually get it. When I look at the portrait, I'm looking at my mother. And I think that's extraordinary because Francis painted something in her that is absolutely real, that is really, really difficult in life. And he was 100% on it. He totally got it. <laughs> At 19 million. All done. Fair warning. Sold here at 19 million. <laughs> <laughs>